0: I am about to study the incorruptible, inerrant word of God. I open my heart to God's message. I humble my mind to his wisdom, and I rest my hopes on his grace. I will accept his rebukes with repentance, rejoice in its truth by faith, and trust in its promises that can never fail. I can be what it says I can be. I can do what it says I can do, and I can change what it says I can change, as I trust in His grace and Spirit. I covenant with God, you guys got it, to grow, and I am ready to change as I hide His Word in my heart and honor Jesus Christ as the Lord of my life. It's good to see you here this morning, and uh, we're going to be talking about something very significant for every believer to do. Occasionally all of us need to make sure that we seriously examine our faith. Why? Because it's one of the most important things in our lives and uh, I believe that sometimes people in our culture take, especially Christians, take the idea of faith rather flippantly and the Apostle Paul, in talking to the Corinthians in First Corinthians in the last chapter, made this observation, he said to them, he said, "Examine yourself to see if you are indeed in the faith." And I think that's something every believer should do periodically, because we have very scriptural ways of doing that. And so this morning, we're going to be doing a kind of faith examination on ourselves through the Word of God. And the title of the message this morning is "Faith." under the microscope faith under the microscope and I'd like to begin this morning by reading the words of Jesus as found in Matthew 25 beginning with verse 31 if you have your Bible you can turn there if you don't you can follow on the screens but uh, in this passage Jesus is literally giving us a glimpse into our future This is an event. This is not a parable. This is an event that is in our future. And Jesus is literally showing us an event that every one of us will attend. And I want us to read through his words. And we'll read just several verses here, beginning with verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man, which is a term that Jesus uses for himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or eating clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. Now, this is a very sobering passage of Scripture, but it is the words of our Lord himself, the one who loved us so much that he came and laid his life down to save us and to redeem us and to make it possible for us to have eternal life. So anything he says to us, he says for our good. We may not like what he says, but we need it, and we need to engage it. As I mentioned, Jesus in this passage is pulling back, so to speak, the curtain of time and letting us peer into the future to see a single event. And that event is a judgment scene. And Jesus says that he is going to be the judge who will sit on his throne on this planet in heavenly glory. And that he will judge all the peoples. You and I are going to be there. Everyone in this auditorium this morning is going to be there. Everyone that was in the first service this morning is going to be there. Every one of us have an appointment with this event. And it makes it clear that Jesus is telling us that there are certain things that are going to be key, that are going to be the standard, the criterion on which he is going to examine us. And as Jesus pulls back this curtain, it immediately begins to dawn on us that we should be asking ourselves a question if we want to truly examine our faith. And that question should be, what kind of faith, what kind of life will it take to stand before God with assurance? What kind of faith, what kind of life will it take to stand before God with assurance? Now, if you put this passage in context, Jesus, before he begins in Matthew 24, talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and what it's going to be like at the end of the age, and this is clearly part of the end of the age teaching. Jesus had just been through a confrontation in the temple courts with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. And they had tried very hard to find some way to find some little technicality or flaw in him that they could accuse him, either to the people or to the Romans. You see, they were jealous of him. He was not the kind of Messiah they wanted. They wanted a king on a white horse. Jesus came as a servant, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. They wanted a conquering hero, Jesus came as a sacrificing servant who was willing to lay his life down for the salvation of the world it had been clearly spelled out in the Old Testament scriptures Isaiah had made it very clear that the Messiah would be the suffering servant and that through his stripes and through his wounds we would be healed and that he would bear the iniquity of many and that many peoples, many nations would be blessed because of him you see, the purpose of Israel ultimately was to carry the Messiah, the promised one, in the womb of the nation and ultimately to bring to the world the possibility of the salvation of all people. God had chosen Abraham and his descendants not for themselves, and God reiterated that to that to them over and over. I haven't chosen you because you're so good. I didn't choose you. Because you were the greatest people on the earth. In fact, you weren't. You were the smallest and weakest and most insignificant. But I chose you to make you my own that I might manifest my power through you and bring salvation to the world. And he told Abraham, through you and through your seed, which is, of course, Jesus Christ, all nations of the world will be blessed. Israel was not chosen for itself. It was chosen for the salvation of the world to bring the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, into the world. But they rejected that Messiah once he came. You see, they had rejected their calling. They were not focused on bringing the world to the knowledge of the true God. They were more focused on themselves and their own little sect and their own little situation. They wanted to erect walls between them and the Gentiles. And uh, they didn't necessarily See themselves as those who were trying to bring others to the true God. They had become very preoccupied with their own personal self efforts at holiness and righteousness. Israel had mistaken its call from God. They were supposed to bring the world to God, instead, they were pushing people away in their own self efforts. It's important for us as the Church of Jesus Christ to not make the same mistake. We are the people of God. That's a wonderful reality. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ has become a son and a daughter of Abraham. We get all the promises to Abraham and all the promises that come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We are the true children of Israel because we have become the children of Israel through Abraham, who is, of course, the father of the the people of God. However, we must never begin to think that we are saved simply to have a holy club. Now, it is true that God has saved us. And I know we use the term, we're sinners saved by grace, and there's a lot of truth in that, because we were all once sinners, right? But when you're saved by grace, you don't remain a sinner. You become what the Bible calls a saint. The saint says that, These are the people who are made holy through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are made holy by what he's done for us and by the gift of the Holy Spirit that empowers us to start living as a new creation. We are to be different than we were before, okay, before, that's what I said, okay, different than we were before because of the grace of God on our lives grace is not a passive thing it's not just clemency it is the power of the Holy Spirit which we do not deserve it's the unmerited favor of God not only forgiving us our sins and reconciling us to God but putting himself in us to empower us to be a brand new creation so the church must never begin to think that we are here to show off our personal holiness we are not we are here to be a holy people we're called to that be holy, for I am holy, says God. In the Old Testament, as repeated by Peter in his epistle. But we must remember that the church is here, as a holy people, through the blood of Christ, to call sinners to salvation. We are here to live such a life that it becomes the kind of life that God the Holy Spirit can call on the witness stand of other people's lives because he's the counselor, the advocate, the lawyer who's trying to win the case for salvation in every life. And if we are living the life, he can bring us on the witness stand and our life has an impact that can help win that case. So, we must not make the mistake that Israel made, turning inward and making everything about ourselves. So this morning as we examine faith, we're asking ourselves a simple question, what kind of faith do we need in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, so that when we stand at this judgment scene where Christ will review us all, what kind of faith will it take to pass that examination? Only by the grace of God can any of us pass that examination. However, Here's the good news. By the grace of God, all of us can pass that examination if we choose to receive that grace and let it function in our lives. Now, I want to talk about faith specifically. We're going to put faith under the microscope. And I want to talk about three kinds of inadequate faith, and I want to talk about one that is adequate, saving faith. You see, the Bible actually describes kinds of faith that will not save you. For example... James, the half brother of Jesus, he was the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the son of Mary and God, so they were half brothers. But it is interesting, many of the early fathers record the fact. In fact, Eusebius, in his history in the 300s, records the fact that James, the half brother of Jesus, looked so much like Jesus that there were actually church fathers and people who would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem during the life of James, just to see him and look on his face because he looked so much like Jesus did and they'd never seen Jesus, they wanted to know what he looked like. And so James was the half-brother, he was an apostle. James points out that faith needs to be a living faith, it needs to bear fruit, it needs to bear the good fruit of good works. We're not saved by those good works, they're the result of being saved. And so. James, in talking to some people in his epistle, writing to them about this living faith, points out that there are some faiths that will not not save you. He says, for example, you believe in one God. Well, that's faith. But then he basically, if I can paraphrase him, says, big deal. (laughs) That's really what he says. Big deal. The demons believe that, he says, and they shudder. It doesn't save them. They know there's one God. They can't avoid that fact. But the point is, it's not a saving faith. So we want to make sure that we have a saving faith. Not only a faith that saves us, but that has an influence for salvation on others. Let's examine some inadequate forms of faith real quickly. First of all, I want to talk about faith that is only a form. Faith that is only a form. Jesus really illustrates this in a parable that he told to a lawyer. You may recall that during this examination where they're all trying to trap him, that one of the lawyers comes up to him and asks him a question because he sees that Jesus is answering so shrewdly, they can't get ahead of him, and he's completely outfoxed the foxes, that he comes up and he asks Jesus a question. He says, Uh... Master, what are, the two, what are the greatest commandments in the scriptures? That, and that would be the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus turns it on him and says, well, how do you read the scriptures? He says, well, it would be love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength. And the second would be to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom. Go and do that and you'll live but it says he wanted to justify himself so he basically says but who's my neighbor well Jesus then tells one of his most famous stories we have dubbed it the story of the good Samaritans now that was a they would consider that a very interesting title because you see Jews and Samaritans basically hated each other The Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breed rebels and heretics. And they would have nothing to do with them. In fact, when they were traveling where they had to go through Samaria, they wouldn't go. Jesus did on one occasion, but most Jews would not go. They would cross the Jordan, go way out around, and then cross back over so they didn't have to go through this polluted area called Samaria because they didn't want to interact with these hated half-breeds called Samaritans. But Jesus says in his story, there was a man traveling the road to Jericho between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now that was a very dangerous road filled with deep wadis and canyons. And often bandits hid out in those canyons and they would attack people, kill them and take all their possessions. And Jesus says that some bandits attacked this man, stripped him of everything and left him for dead. He wasn't dead, but he was nearly dead. Then Jesus has his setting, and he begins to describe what happens next. He says a priest, someone that represents God, someone that represents religion, someone that represented the best in their Judaism, comes down the road, and he sees the man lying beside the road. And we don't know exactly what goes through his head, but we do know this. It was probably something like this. Bandits have attacked this man. He's nearly dead. I wonder if they're around. I may be in danger, and he probably was. But then he might have also had thought something like this. Well, I'm on my way to the temple to serve, and if I touch this man and he turns out that he's dead, I'll be unclean and I won't be able to serve, and this is my one time this year to serve at the temple. I can't get involved, but whatever his reasoning Jesus says he moves to the opposite side of the road from where the man was lying and acts as if he doesn't see him and just simply passes by and leaves him to die. Well, religion gets a second chance. Then comes a Levite. This would be like uh, the church staff. The Levitical uh, people, the Levitical tribes served at the temple and we're on the temple payroll to do all the help make all the ministry of the temple function and here was a man who he could also be a lawyer who taught the, the law to the people but the point is he comes he sees the exact scene he has somewhat I guess the same thoughts and reactions because Jesus says his conclusion is he's going to do the same thing he moves to the opposite side of the road and passes by and leaves the man to die then Jesus brings in the shocking character A Samaritan. A what? Yeah, there's a Samaritan coming down the road. There's a hated half-breed coming down the road. Someone that you would curse, and the Jews called them dogs to their face. But Jesus says this Samaritan sees the man and rushes to the side of the road to help him. Now, he gives us a beautiful picture of love in this person. What he says is, is that love always gives what it has to give. It doesn't excuse itself and say, well, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a medical degree. I can't help this guy. Uh, I'm the wrong person. Somebody else maybe would be more qualified. I'm going on. That's what some of us do. Oh, I'm not qualified to do that or do this or do that. So, but he says love doesn't do that because he gives us a picture in this man's life by saying he just looked at what he had to give and he gave it. That's what love does. And so he says, I've got some wine. So he takes the wine and he begins cleaning and sterilizing the man's wounds. He says, I've got a little oil. So he puts the oil on it to start the healing and soften the wounds and he bandages his wounds. He got some bandages. And then it says he put him on his donkey and he leads him to an inn where he can be taken care of and he pays the bill and then he leaves money when he has to leave with the innkeeper and says take care of him and I'll this is for the bill and if there's any left over when I come back I'll pay that too that's a picture of love saying I don't have everything I may not be a doctor but I can do what I can do love never looks at what it doesn't have it looks at what it does have what's in your hand what can you give Jesus then looks at the lawyer and says to him, he gives him a question, but it's very distinct how he gives him the question. Who was neighbor to the man who was robbed by the thieves? Notice how Jesus turned the question right side out. The lawyer's question has been, who is my neighbor? Who am I obligated to? Jesus turned it around and said, who are you being neighbor to? And the man answered, he couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan, I guess the one who helped him, the man who helped him. And Jesus said, go and do exactly the same. Now, what Jesus is saying is that our faith doesn't need to be a form like a hollow shell that's got all the religious trappings, but there's no essence, there's no real love, there's no real righteousness and caring and holiness there that because it's all been drained out. It's just an appearance of religion. You see, Jesus is telling us by this story that this man on the side of the road, represents humanity. As you and I walk down the road of life, so to speak, there are people in both ditches that have been robbed and beaten nearly half dead by the circumstances of life and by the devils of this life and by this culture and by everything that's going on in this evil world. And we have an opportunity often to respond to their need. The question is, do we or do we just... Put our heads up and act religious and go on. I've got things to do. The priest and the Levite represent dead religion, a form of godliness, a shell, but no power, no power, no love, no impact, no effectiveness. The Samaritan is the true Christian, the living church of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants all of us to be. He wants us to have a living faith. So the first kind of faith that's inadequate is faith that's only a form. It doesn't impact or change anything. The second is faith that's only a fact. Faith that's only a fact. Don't want to have this. The best illustration of this would be the Sadducees. And I know, everybody says, you know, they were so sad because you can see they were sad, you see? No. <laughs> Sadducees were a sect of the Jews that had particular beliefs. First of all, they were anti-supernaturalists in the sense that they did not believe that God interacted with the physical realm. Now, you cannot be a true Christian and an authentic Christian and a consistent Christian if you do not believe that God interacts with the physical realm, the material realm. Why? Well, for one, you are a believer because God has interacted with the material realm in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he's interacting constantly in the material realm in your life because if you're a believer, you have God himself living on the inside of you, trying, if you'll let him, to express himself through you. So, in fact, heaven and earth are not discrete realms they are intertwined in the very person of the believer that's what the church is it's god's spirit active on this planet through us and so The Sadducees didn't believe that God interacted that way. He'd kind of created everything. He eventually got around to giving us the law at Sinai, and then he said, you guys will obey that, and you'll have the best life possible. But they didn't believe in any resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe anything supernatural was going to happen. You just kind of kept the commandments, did your best. It was all just a list of facts. You kind of agreed to those facts and tried to do the best you could, and that was it. That's what life was. Jesus, in interacting with these Sadducees during this entrapment attempt, they came to him with a kind of silly story about a lady who had married a man. He died, then one of his brothers, as obligated by the law, married her to try to have uh, children for his brother's uh, namesake. And then he died too, and then so on down through seven brothers, and none of them left any children. But the point is is that they said to Jesus, Now, Jesus, if this happens, whose wife is she going to be since she was married to all seven brothers? You can almost see Jesus roll his eyes because of what he's saying. This is silly. He basically tells them that at the resurrection... They're not going to be husband and wife. There's going to be deeper types of relationships. He says they're going to be like the angels of heaven who don't marry. But the point is this. Jesus then replies and says, you're in error because you do not know the scriptures are the power of God. That's Matthew 22, 29. You're in error because you do not know the scriptures are the power of God. Now that should, sounded probably strange to some of their ears. Many of them could quote verbatim the first five books of Moses they could quote a majority of the Psalms they could quote much of the prophets by memory, and Jesus says you don't know the scriptures what do you mean we don't know the scriptures well it's not about quoting it it's about really letting it speak to you and say to you what it actually says they had reinterpreted to mean what they wanted it to mean they had imposed their meaning on scripture instead of letting scripture impose itself on on their perspective and so Jesus said you don't know the power of God you don't realize he really is in interaction with us he is the living God and there is a resurrection he told them in fact he said to them have you not read where God says I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob he said he's not the God of the dead he's the God of the living and that shut them up but the point is is your faith cannot simply be a list of facts you consent to, but you do not live your life in obedience to. These Sadducees had turned the faith in just to a list of facts. And there's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, who their faith has kind of become a list of facts. I believe the facts of the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I believe he was God incarnate. I believe he was raised from the dead. And that's all good. You've got to believe those things. Scripture makes that quite clear. But if that's all it is... Not good enough. That is just faith that's only facts. And facts won't save you. In fact, you can even have a passionate faith about certain aspects of what it means to be a Christian. For example, there are some people who get all churned up about... uh, you know, miracles and all those things. And God still does miracles, don't get me wrong. But they get all churned up about miracles and prophecies and dreams and all this kind of stuff. And Paul talks about them being carried away by all this stuff. And he says they puff themselves up with their idle notions. But Jesus also had something to say about you can get real passionate about miracles and faith and stuff and still not have a living faith. In fact, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only, notice these words, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will get you in there doing the will of God. What is the will of God? Love God, love others, as we learn. Then he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles now I want you to notice Jesus doesn't go no you didn't do that they had done all that and they'd done it in his name but notice what he does says then I will tell them plainly I never knew you away from me you evildoers what's the problem here these people may have been doing all that And we don't know by what power they were doing it. And they were doing it in the name of Jesus. But Jesus says, you're not the ones doing the will of my Father in heaven. You're not the ones living by divine love. And so he sends them away to perdition. You see, even supernatural facts will destroy your soul if they are more important to you than knowing, loving, and obeying Christ. In the same way, mere doctrinal correctness is deadly if we forget that a relationship of love with God and each other is at the center. This is borne out in what the resurrected Christ says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation, Jesus is speaking to the churches and he sends a letter by, by John to every church. And here's what he says to the church at Ephesus. And it it's at first begins very positive. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Oh, that sounds good. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. This church is doing its work. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Oh, well, if he ended there, we'd say, wow, that's really good. But then he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, I will destroy you as a church. Here is a church that is doctrinally pure, passionate for the truth and doctrine, and has jealously defended the doctrinal purity and orthodoxy of the church, but Christ threatens them with destruction. Because of one grave lack, they have forsaken, they have abandoned their first love. Here we see Christ driving home the very same truth that he gave to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, you're nothing. If it isn't love driving that doctrinal purity, if it isn't a love for God and a love for those he loves, it counts for nothing. Now, sound doctrine is necessary, don't get me wrong. The Bible constantly admonishes us to be sure of that. In fact, Paul, in his training of the young pastor, Timothy, said this in 1 Timothy 4.16. He said, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, which means hang on to them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Those, your hearers. But the core of all sound doctrine is Jesus Christ. Why is that true? because Christianity is personal, not philosophical. You don't become a Christian by learning a philosophical system and having some kind of worldview that's around some kind of philosophical system. You become a Christian when you fall in love with and obey the person of Jesus Christ. It's a personal relationship, not a religious system. This is why the Apostle Paul in speaking of his labors for the church at Colossae and Laodicea, reminds them in Colossians 2, 2-3. He says this, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's he saying? The center of point of everything everything is around the person of Jesus Christ if it ever becomes just something else then you're in trouble so as we look back at Matthew 25 30 through 40 and I'm not going to read it to you again but we'll put it up on the screen as you look just through that far you see what Jesus is saying he is commending them for acts of love He's not saying that you're saved by your works. This is not a work salvation at all. What he's saying is, is because you allowed my life and my love and my spirit to change your heart and your life, you naturally made choices. You begin making choices to love people where they are. Now, loving people doesn't mean that it's something that passionately comes over you and you naturally want to just feel like you want to run to help them. Not that there are times that God helps us to feel that, but there are times when people need help that seem revolting to us. Their condition seems revolting. It'd be real easy in human terms to say, well they got themselves by the, in that condition by the choices they've made. They can, they've made their bed, they can just sleep in it. Well, A lot of people respond that way, but sometimes God calls us to love and that love can only be expressed by the Holy Spirit empowered will. I make a decision to love because God calls me to do so. Not because I feel it. Some people are waiting around to feel something. Well, I got news for you. It's probably not going to show up. Especially in certain circumstances. You're waiting for something to run up and down your spine and it's not going to do it. What you need is not to be feeling focused and circumstantially controlled. But you need to be obedience controlled by the power of the Spirit through you. By divine love. And so... You make a decision to love because God commanded you, love your neighbor as yourself. And the issue is not who is your neighbor. The issue is who are you being neighbor to. This is the work of salvation. This is love-centered, love-motivated living that is the result of being saved and having your loves set in order. You realize what salvation is, and I've said this several times. Salvation is the saving of your love life. And we're not talking about your romance, although it'll save that too. I'm not talking about a romantic life. I'm talking about all your loves. For example, John would say to us, don't love the world or anything in the world. He's talking about the world system that's antagonistic to God. He says, don't love that system. It mocks God. It mocks truth. It hates God. It hates Jesus. He says, don't love that. Because if you have love for that, he says, the love of the Father is not even in you. So you've got to get your love set in order. Love God first. Love your neighbors as yourself. And when you get your loves in order, then you're being saved. That's salvation. Being a Christian means you, are, you begin to see people differently because of what Jesus did for them. You see, how valuable is a person? Well, when you see Jesus Christ dying on the cross for them, that puts a pretty expensive price tag on them. That's the estimation of how much God has valued us in his love. And so we see people through the work of Christ, through the love of Christ. We do not value them based upon how sin has twisted them or marred them. We value them because Jesus died for them. So in this passage in Matthew 25, there's a sense in which we could say that Jesus is saying to us, in effect... And he's talking about himself, but do you see him or do you see me in their eyes? Do you hear him or hear me in their cries? Have you learned to serve the Lord by serving them? With the power of love he calls to see his face in them all. Loving them is your way of loving him. Wow. That's almost as if God said, you know... I want you to love me and I need to give you a practical way to do that. I'll just put you in each other's way. And when you love each other, you're loving me. And Jesus takes it personally. Finally, without this love, we're always in danger of the third kind of inadequate faith. And that is faith that's only a farce. Faith that's only a farce. Now, we all certainly want to avoid that. And I pray I'm talking to no one that needs this. But the point is this is part of the examination. The point is is that the Pharisees would be a good example of this. Jesus, after the Pharisees tried to entrap him, begins to preach a very scathing message to them in particular and all the Jewish leaders. And uh, what he does seems very, very harsh. But you must understand he has over and over and over again tried to reach these people. He's performed miracles before them. He's actually taken a man without eyes, made mud balls and created some eyeballs for him. He's done things that only God could do And each time. They reject the miracle, they reject him, and they're trying right now to find a way to kill him. And Jesus finally just turns to the crowds and rips the mask off of their hypocritical faces and says, I know exactly what you are and I'm gonna expose you to everyone. And he does that as an act of love. Because what he's saying is, nothing else is worked. This is my last chance. This is my last thing I'm going to do to try to wake you up. Because you don't have to die in your sins. You can repent. Jesus really loves us that much. Now we know he did succeed with a few of them. Joseph of Arimathea became a disciple, silently and quietly because he was afraid of his position. Nicodemus, it seems, became one as well. And the early church fathers tell us that both of them continued as disciples of Jesus after his resurrection. But the point is, is that, by and large, they rejected him. And Jesus is doing everything in his power to wake him up, to get him to repent. And here's what he says to them in Matthew 23, 25-28. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, if a preacher were to get up and preach to people that way today, he'd empty the church really quick. (laughs) But I'm just simply reading the words of Jesus, and those were addressed specifically to this group. But we can learn something from it. Wherever faith is turned inward and becomes a spiritual neurosis... Obsessed with its own self and its own spiritual condition, its own spiritual accomplishments, it becomes a farce. It becomes a form of hypocrisy. You see, God has called us to holiness. But if your pursuit of holiness is all about self-effort and self-righteousness and rules and regulations and it's all about legalistic holiness, legalistic holiness is unholy. It makes you a hypocrite. Because you can't even live up to your own ethical standards without the grace of God. And if you try it in self-effort, you simply fail, and then you have to try to justify yourself. So you start judging other people to make yourself look good. God has called us not to ethical holiness, but to love-generated holiness, generated out of a heart of love. And the result will be you will live by the highest ethical standard because you love him and you love others. You're doing everything in your power to please God and to do good to the souls of men and women. And so that becomes true holy life. One empowered by the Holy Spirit. Christ calls us to that kind of love. Love generated righteousness and holiness. Now let me finish. We've been talking about the three counterfeits, but now let's talk about genuine faith for a moment. And I could spend a whole series on that, but obviously I'm not going to. We're just going to quickly make a couple of points. Here we're going to talk about faith that is a living force. We've talked about faith that's only a form of godliness but denies the power. We're talking about, we've talked about faith that's only a list of facts. I believe this, I believe that, I believe that. But it really doesn't change your life. It doesn't change the way you live. We've talked about faith that could even be a farce, where it's kind of a front for what's really going on in your life. But here we're talking about genuine faith, faith that's a living force. Now, there's a lot the Bible has to say about that and what it looks like. Jesus talks about he's the true vine, we're the branches, and that we're abiding in him and we're remaining in him, that it causes us to bear fruit. And that fruit is the character of Jesus, which attracts people to the kingdom. But let me just make a quick comparison. Some people think that the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, and, uh, and the Apostle Paul have a different theology, that somehow they conflicted with each other, which is simply not true. For example, James talks about the fact that if you have a living faith, it will show up in good works and good fruit in your life. Now, he doesn't say you're saved by good works. He says, if you've got a living faith, good works will be the result. Now, the Apostle Paul comes along and in talking about how we're saved, says, no one is saved by good works. No one is saved by what they do. No one is saved by keeping the law. He says, you're saved by faith, working through grace, and you're saved by faith and grace alone. That's it. No one can boast about their good works because that won't save you. But the Apostle Paul makes it clear that once you're saved by that faith, that God has recreated you to do good works. You are his poema, as it says in the Greek, his masterpiece, so that you can do the good works he's laid out ahead of time for you to do there in Ephesians. Now the point is is that if you were to look at what Paul and James are teaching, they're teaching exactly the same thing, one from one end of the spectrum and one from the other. Because the Bible doesn't want you to miss either one of those truths. The truth is, you're not saved by works. You're saved by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you. It's a completed work. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are made holy through the blood of Christ. You're forgiven through the blood of Christ. And you are given, though you don't deserve it, the merits of having God the Holy Spirit live in you. And you become the intersection between heaven and earth. Your life is an intersection between heaven and earth. God is manifesting himself through you. That's what it means to be a believer. And James is saying that when that happens, the result is you're going to start living like Jesus. Because if you've got Jesus on the inside of you, you can't have Jesus on the inside of you and not start acting like Jesus because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's going to change you. You can't have the fire of God burning in you and not be changed. On the other hand, Paul, how do we see that Paul agrees with that? (laughs) Just look at his life. If you were to have a contest on planet earth leaving Jesus out of it and say what human being did the most for the world and probably deserved salvation, although nobody really deserves it. But if you had such a, you would probably pick the Apostle Paul. In fact, we're here this morning as believers because the Apostle Paul suffered stoning and suffered beatings and did all that so he could get the gospel to Asia Minor and Europe and we Gentiles could become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. His impact is still rolling down through history. His life has impacted billions of Christians. So if you were going to pick anybody to be the Apostle Paul, so don't tell me that Paul didn't believe good works come out of your faith. He spent his whole life pursuing doing good things for God. He and James are in perfect harmony. But they're talking to people who have different problems. Some are trying to work it out. And Paul says no it's by faith. And some are forgetting. That if you have real faith. It produces good works. And that's what we're in danger of today. So the pressing question. As we finish this morning is this. What kind of faith. Do I have. I am going to stand. Before Jesus Christ. On this day. The early church had a maxim uh, that they repeated a lot, and it went something like this. This is the best translation of it, I think. It simply said this, we're all, in the end, we are all going to be questioned about love. Where do you think they got that? I think they got that from Matthew 25, where Jesus is literally questioning everyone about love. Did my love control your life and did it show up in your life in the way you responded to people? Because the way you responded to people is the way you're responding to me. And so if it did, welcome to my kingdom. You're my children. You're part of the kingdom that I prepared. But if it didn't, it doesn't matter how religious you were or if you're crying, Lord, Lord, we did miracles. We cast out demons. We did all that. He says, Depart from me. I don't know you. What kind of faith does it take to be able to stand before God and pass the examination? You see, none of us could hope to pass that examination on our own. Not a single one of us, but by the blood of Christ and by the grace of God, we can pass that examination. I mean, I'm just, I just marvel that God's made it possible for us to pass the examination because I know I don't deserve to pass the examination I hate to tell you this and this is not judgment I'm just quoting what the Bible tells you you don't deserve it either none of us do all have sinned all have fallen short of the glory of God but we are justified freely by His blood praise God for that And what that means is we're not only forgiven, we're given the Holy Spirit. And we can have a living faith. You say, well, I can't do much for God. Get your eyes off yourself. It's not you. It's Him in you. You need to release God to do what He wants to do. And the most important thing you may ever do, maybe something that I think can be illustrated by what Kathy Diggins shared with us a couple Sundays back, is she shared the story of the... Sunday school teacher who took a little boy who had been taken to church for the first time and he was taken to a Sunday school class and was set on the teacher's lap and the teacher just simply hugged him and said Jesus loves you and I think she said the little boy said does he love me as much as these other children she said yes he was poor he didn't have on nice clothes he didn't have on the latest tennis shoes you know But yes, Jesus loves you as much as he loves all the others. And that was his change point. His life was never the same because a Sunday school teacher took a moment to say, Jesus loves you. You never know when you stop beside the road of life and gather someone into your lap and just say, what do you need today? Well, I don't feel loved. Well, I'm going to tell you who loves you. Jesus loves you. That may be the point that changes not only their life for this world, but for all eternity. You can change it forever. That young man became a pastor who impacted thousands for Jesus Christ. Thank you, Kathy, for sharing that beautiful story. And you see, the pressing question is put to us, what kind of faith Well, we need a living faith. And Paul said in Galatians 5, 6, he said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That's it, you you get that, you've got it all. You can stand before Christ on that day and he will say, welcome, come and take the kingdom because you had faith expressing itself through my love. You trusted me, you obeyed me and you allowed my spirit to take charge of your life. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 25, 40, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. So something as practical as showing up and serving cookies to the kids at VBS this week, right, Kathy? Could be a change point. Could be loving someone and God's love changing a life because You just were willing to sacrifice a little bit of time to be a servant.